And so I, I think it's really important that your organization is taking this milestone as an opportunity to reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say that increased participation from service populations is a real uh, cornerstone in an anti-racist uh, strategy. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Well, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who will introduce herself. Carly, please go ahead. Hi, well, thank you. Uh, Glad to be here. My name is Carly Moore, and I know Maurice through the Growing Hope Globally board that I was fortunate enough to join recently. Currently, I am a PhD student studying environment and resources at Stanford University, in Palo Alto, California. Um, Before that, I was working at the Native American Agriculture Fund, a private charitable trust devoted to supporting Native American farmers and ranchers across the U.S. Um, That that sums up my interest in my PhD work. Um, How can we create sustainable food systems um, ecologically, economically, Uh, socially sustainable food systems that benefit indigenous peoples in the U.S. Uh, I'm interested in that topic for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, I am Lumbee of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. Uh, My tribe is uh, homelands in southeastern North Carolina, very agriculturally based uh, from ancient times until now. And I grew up on a farm, uh, so my parents Uh, My father and his brother farm together. Uh, We live on a farm with cattle and tobacco and corn and wheat and soybeans. Uh, My siblings and I were involved in various ways in in the running of the farm. And uh, I learned early on that I preferred the business side, uh, the side where you could be inside. (laughs) Uh, And so that has taken me through all my levels of education, uh, interested in in learning and studying and researching about agriculture, both its ecological and economic uh, impacts, and then hopefully to come up with knowledge that's helpful for my father and my brother and all of those who are still farming and tilling the land, uh, caring for the land. A really important aspect, I think, is is the uh, place-based Uh, cultural significance of land and indigenous uh, cultures. And I say cultures because they're all different, right? And I can only speak to mine, but it is really important of taking care of the land and how do you uh, use what you have much less than what used to be, right? And so we have to deal with the impacts of colonization and land theft but also say, okay, we now have this land and how do we take care of it and how do we use it to sustain us? And so, um, yeah, from undergraduate where I studied chemistry and agricultural business management to my master's where I worked in agricultural economics and international rural development and studied a bit in Europe, I've always just been interested in one, how do we benefit indigenous peoples? Uh, There's been so much trauma, uh, both historical and and current day. And so how do we counteract that and start thinking about thriving, not just surviving? Um, How do we use one of our most precious assets, land, as part of that equation 
to start thriving. And all of the extra benefits that come from um, growing and cultivating uh, increased food security and food sovereignty, uh, increased economic diversification and opportunity, uh, and a chance to really put our cultural knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge into practice so that it's passed from generation to generation and, and lives on. And so uh, for me, uh, at least in this point of my life, uh, that's what a lot of my time and effort and energy revolves around and is one of the reasons that I'm so happy to be involved in Growing Hope Globally, mm. whose mission is to um, galvanize growers, farmers, ranchers in the U.S. to support growing, farming, ranching in other parts of the world uh, for increased well-being across the board. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's what I, I think about and what I try to do. I try to make some notes and there's a lot of very interesting things you, you, you mentioned. The first question that I have, you know, uh, while closely listening to you is, you studied chemistry. And so why did you do that while you're interested, um, you know, in, in, in food security and agriculture? Why? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think, um, so coming from the area that I came from, there were a lot of assumptions about what it means to be a professional and what success may look like. And um, where I'm from, there's a, a limited economy, uh, but we have agriculturalists, we have healthcare professionals, and we have educators. And so those were the main three boxes. And I already decided that I wasn't cut out to be an agriculturalist. So I, I looked at healthcare and I looked at education and I said, well, maybe I'll be a doctor. And so I chose a discipline that I thought would be helpful in the study of medicine. That's how I started in chemistry. Um, as I continued, there were a number of fortuitous events that kind of opened my mind to the breadth and depth of agriculture and food systems work and that I, I don't have to be someone with a green thumb. I don't have to um, have ease of working with animals and I don't have to want to be outside all the time to make an impact in agriculture. And so I started in chemistry. Um, you know, another reason, um, there are classes you can take in high school where to earn college credits. Mm -hmm. And I, I took one for chemistry and it's the only one that I failed. And so I thought, wow, I need a lot of help in this. And so let me go <laughs> study it and see if I can get better. One thing I learned is that I was the opposite of 90% of my classmates. Most of them struggled through lecture and loved lab. They just loved going into the laboratory and doing experiments. I was the opposite. So I love the lecture and seeing all the equations, but um, I found it to be really tedious and repetitive in the lab. And so through a mixture of agriculture becoming more of an opportunity and realizing that being a chemist was not uh, my future, I, I kind of shifted away. But I'm so happy to have had that background. And I think a theme in my life is where usually you're supposed to choose. So you're supposed to choose one major. I've had two. And, and so um, even now, the program that I'm in is interdisciplinary in nature. And I think there's a lot to be said about um, looking through multiple uh, perspectives and seeing what you can find from it. Absolutely. And I agree. Well, you, you know what the the starting premise of this podcast podcast is is that you know every everyone's perspective is true but partial and that you need you know different perspectives um and even if you do have a different perspectives you can always find a place uh, where you can start a discussion 
and a dialogue, which is of importance in the world that we live in, where we have so many challenges, there's so much polarization. So I, you know, one of the things that I hope that we achieve with this podcast is to have these listeners, hey, this, you know, this person is from this background, but I see overlap with what the other person has said. So, you know, they can have conversations with each other. It seems that they are from different parts of the spectrum, but they are, you know, there are always possibilities for dialogue. And that's, that is something that gives me uh, hope. Uh, Carly, I, I want to go back because I have also a lot of listeners who are not, you know, from the US. Um, tell a bit about your your tribe and how did you grow up? You know, can you sketch a little bit of a picture? Because there are a lot of misconceptions, especially I, I think for people who live outside of the US, um, you know, about uh, the different uh, indigenous people within the US and what their uh, rights are and their position is within society give us yeah i know we can you know we can do like hundred thousand podcasts about this but give us some idea about you know how you how you grew up and and uh, yeah tell about your tribe certainly thank you for the opportunity so i um as i mentioned before my tribe's name is lumbee l-u-m-b-e-e so the lumbee tribe of north carolina and north carolina is a state um, on the east coast uh, just below Washington, D.C., uh, halfway between New York and Florida. Uh, so I grew up on a farm. Um, in the U.S., there are uh, varying levels of um, federal recognition. And so there are over 600 tribes in the U.S., a large number. About 2% of the U.S. population identify as American Indian, Alaskan Native, or American Indian, Alaska Native in combination with some other race. Uh, but the area where I am from is really predominantly Native and predominantly Lumpy. And so I grew up in an enclave of sorts of Lumbies. And uh, for most of my life until I was 18 and moved away, that was it. My schools were Lumbee, my churches were Lumbee, the community events, my family predominantly. Uh, so I grew up, even though I'm a minority in the US context, I was in the majority. And what that meant is that for a long time, I did not spend uh, much time or energy thinking about what it meant to be Lumbee, just as a fish probably doesn't spend much time thinking about what it is to swim, right? Uh, but in the 10 years or so since I've been uh, outside of my community, I've been able to, to intentionally learn more, uh, to share with folks who ask. Um, my tribe has um, limited recognition with the federal government. So what that means is that we don't have a reservation. Uh, a lot of people might be um, thinking of the um, removal of Native peoples from their homelands to a reservation, usually in the West, usually in areas that were lacking in natural resources and so pushed to the side and, and, and kind of confined to one spot. And that is um, very important to talk about and to to dig into, but that was not uh, my people's experience. Um, my people have been in the North Carolina Eastern Seaboard region from time immemorial. And upon contact, um, started making trade-offs with uh, settlers and colonists and, and, and negotiating mm -hmm. space and sovereignty. Uh, and, and what happened is what you can see in lots of ways, um, we retreated to the land that was less valuable, the swamps, and they kind of left us alone. And so there was loss of land overall, uh, but we're still in the relatively the same spot. There was also a lot of um, intermingling with peoples around uh, my tribe over the, the centuries 
adopted people from other tribes that have been decimated mm-hmm. um, and in doing so learn parts of their language and their culture and their traditions and so over time built up this haven of safety and security for indigenous peoples from lots of background. And so now today you can see that in the diversity of our peoples. Um, and, and also I think is a major reason why we were able to survive in the face of many threats. Um, and then as the nation changed and evolved that also came to mean other races And so um, the area that I'm from, even though my community is predominantly native and I grew up in an enclave, right around us um, is used to be tri-racial, so white, black, native, but now a growing Hispanic population. And again, the tribe is in uh, the, the mix of interacting with and, and, um, figuring out how to incorporate uh, lots of different cultures and traditions and and heritages into this land that that we've been in for a while. In terms of just really physically, how did I grow up? Mm -hmm. Um, We had a house. (laughs) My parents um, started in a, a mobile trailer. And when they saved enough, they built a wood house on the farm. I have three younger siblings, and so both of my parents work. My father was a farmer. My mother was a, a health care administrator and later a teacher. Um, and I would say grew up uh, middle class. The middle class is disappearing in the U.S., mm-hmm. but we had what we needed and we didn't want for anything. And they worked hard to provide. And, and so I know sometimes uh, people have thoughts of teepees or um, other uh, historical lodging. And and so that would have been Western Plains culture to start with. Uh, But yeah, we grew up in much the same way that anybody in the rural Southwood um, church and Christianity is a big part of the culture at this time. And and family uh, kinship is, is, paramount. I think there's a a few dimensions into mm-hmm. how someone perceives the environment and their mm-hmm. level of dedication to. Yeah. Um, and I would say certainly Uh, Those of us who've grown up in indigenous culture and especially had the privilege to be on the land that our ancestors called home as well, there's a strong motivation to steward and to protect and to um, make sure that we can pass to our next generations um, this asset that is um, not just ecological or economic, but also spiritual. Mm. Um, our ancestors, and in my case, I think especially the impacts of colonization, I think sometimes uh, this land was our land, and then it was taken. Mm-hmm. And then through blood, sweat, and tears, my ancestors fought to get it back. And when I say fought, I mean a lot of things. I mean armed uprisings, fought to get it back, but I also mean uh, buying it back. And I also mean protesting against um, current day intrusions, whether that be um, a pipeline or or some other potentially um, destructive development. And so, knowing how much effort and energy and time and love went into protecting this land so that we could still be here, I think has a strong part to play in how uh, folks perceive uh, the land and their their level of care for it. Yeah, thank you for for sharing. Um, I have a question because you, you mentioned that 
you know, in where you grew up, you you went to church as well. So, um, yeah, you know, what what type of church? Uh, Protestant, Catholic? How 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 do we need to see that? Yeah. So I think broadly in the United States, Native peoples have had um, lots of different interactions with Christianity as an institution. Uh, and certainly in, in my new home here in California, uh, Catholic missions are, are a big part of the conversation and, and, and in other places. Where I grew up in North Carolina, which is part of the American South, um, it's predominantly Protestant. So uh, I grew up going to a free will Baptist church. Um, and you know what Baptist is, and free will just means you don't report to anybody, <laughs> so there's no governing structures, it's just the church, uh, but a free will also means that we as individuals have the free will to choose or to not choose to follow God, um, and so Baptists, Methodist, mm -hmm. Holiness, but most, just pr Protestant in, mm -hmm. in my area, uh, and in a huge part of the culture. And I think you'll find in the American South, predominantly, as Native people interacted with uh, settlers and colonists, um, sometimes Christianity was forced upon people, and other times uh, people incorporated it into their broader spiritual traditions mm -hmm. right and so if you were to go to my community and ask anyone off the street on mm -hmm. the side of the road um, how did the Lumbee become Christian you wouldn't hear about forced missions or um, forced assimilation you would hear a, a story from them about when we heard the word, we adopted it as part of our own because it was not incompatible mm -hmm. with the beliefs that we had previously about a creator mm -hmm. who ultimately wants the best for us and cares for us on a, a global community basis, but mm -hmm. individually as well. And so there were a lot of compatibilities mm -hmm. and, and, um, was accepted into and, and grew to be part of the culture. Yeah, if I may ask, do you still consider yourself to be part of the church? Yes. Okay. And, and Carly, I'm, the reason I'm asking, because, you know, when I walk, um, well, you know that this podcast is a spin-off of my 100-mile walk where I try to raise awareness about hunger, poverty, and injustice. We often talk, you know, with my fellow co-workers about what drives you in life, uh, how do you look at religion, spirituality. And then when we have a conversation about the younger generation, it seems that, yeah, um, people see within their communities that the younger generation might still be spiritual, but not maybe that religious anymore, and which then means they don't go to church or they don't, you know, I, you know, so even if they believe in God, they don't see themselves within that church. Um, so how how is that within your community among the younger generation, or is that very diverse as well? Can, can you share a bit about that? Yeah, but I think. It's a topic that uh, comes up more and more. And, um, you know, when I'm home, I attend church with my family, um, a church that they've been attending for at least four generations since when it was built, right? Um, I think I have some thoughts about the relationship between uh, young people in the church as an institution. And, and I think that my community might diverge from that just a bit based on tradition. And I guess let me tease that out. I think at least on the, the US scale that young people who were raised in the church are really starting to grapple with what they see as contradictions 
in the message of Jesus and in how the institutions govern themselves and play out in society, right? And some of that can be summed up in, in the isms, racism, sexism, homophobia. And in general, I think younger generations are questioning institutions and authority more. And why does it have to be like this? And that doesn't make sense. And so I, I would agree with the premise that younger people are moving away from the church as an institution and maybe exploring their religiosity or spirituality on their own or in uh, institutions that they make themselves through, through groups of people who to come together to, to worship and to, to investigate the word. I think in my community, there's still that trend. I see lots of people speaking out about it, mm -hmm. but the act of going to church is still such a traditional mm -hmm. act that you see people still show up on Sunday because that's what we do. We show up on Sunday, right? Uh, regardless of we're, we're questioning, we're worried about racism or homophobia or, or sexism, we go to church because our grandparents, if you're fortunate enough to have them, are there. And so you're there, too. And it's it's part of the tradition. But but that doesn't negate the fact that people are still questioning the institution. talked about food security and food sovereignty. Can you please explain to the listeners what you exactly mean with that? As best I know in the literature and in the growth of the movement, food sovereignty is, is maybe a step beyond food security. Food security says we know biologically, nutritionally, that people need X amount of micronutrients, macronutrients to survive and to thrive. And how do we produce that and distribute that and get it to people to reduce hunger? Food sovereignty says people who are being fed deserve to have a role in decision making around that process. And so that could look like the types of food, right? And so um, in food security, that takes a back seat. It's more macronutrients, micronutrients is how much we need. We've got to get it to where we're going to get it. In food sovereignty, that becomes, well, what is culturally important to us? What tastes good? What do we have a preference for? What are the seeds of that have been passed down? And those are the ones that we want to use. Um, it also says that uh, people have a right to be involved in the method of production um, and what that looks like and that they should have some type of choice in where they get their sustenance Then that there should be uh, fundamentally more uh, co-management and co-governance of food systems so that people who are being fed, aka all of us, have a role and a say in how that food is produced. And then it, it, it spirals into how you produce your food also impacts the ecosystem um, and what that looks like um, and being able to, one thing that a lot of people in indigenous circles in the U.S. say is you can't have tribal sovereignty of the government unless you have food sovereignty. You can't be sovereign unless you can feed your people. And so what happened in the past when 
uh, large groups of Native people were displaced onto the reservation system is the government said, okay, you can't grow the food that you've been growing because we moved you from your habitat, but we will give food rations, right? And in their minds, that was sufficient. That was food security. Hey, we're giving you the food. Here's the flour. It's enough calories to, to help you get through. But that wasn't food sovereignty. Food sovereignty says we can grow our own food. We can use the seeds we want. We get to decide how um, this fundamental act of nourishing ourselves um, plays out. And what I understood is you hope to um, get there through what you call uh, climate smart agriculture? Yes. And so I think, um, you know, I, I am studying beside lots of, of people who are interested in climate change. And uh, there's, there's basically two paths. There's mitigation. How do we try to stop it from being as bad as it might be? And adaptation. How do we uh, adapt? what we're doing now in anticipation of a changing climate. Yeah. And I think there's a mixture of those to be had in, in what some folks call climate smart agriculture, mm -hmm. but that's a relatively new term. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I'm hoping to do is to link it to a much older term, which is traditional ecological knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, because we're not, this generation is not the first generation to think about food systems and their impact on ecosystems. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, we need to reach back into what our ancestors knew and what we currently know. And how do we bring that um, from our, our circles of indigenous people who are much smaller in proportion now than once were, how do we bring that knowledge um, to a bigger scale and, and try to incorporate those techniques into our, our modern agricultural system. We talked about a lot of things in, in terms of, uh, you know, what, where you, what you worry about and what you try to do about it. Um, I've heard terms, you know, like racism, uh, you know, uh, and injustice as, as well. What do you worry about most at the moment? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think I could uh, list out a number of injustices that that I find egregious. I, and, you know, in my first year, I've been at Stanford for a month now, and I've done a lot of introductions. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you studying? Um, and trying different ways of explaining, right? And I think the one that I've landed on that's most true to me mm -hmm. um, is the well-being of Indigenous peoples. And so what worries me the most are how American Indian, Alaska Native in the US, terminology we use, um, consistently rank high or highest in all of these negative outcomes. And, but because of the size of our population often can go unrecognized or even uh, actively erased. And so what worries me is that our communities will continue to grapple with injustices, violence, um, insecurity, and nobody will know. Um, and you know, take that to another level, I'm privileged to be where I am because I know that indigenous peoples in other places of the world have even less recognition 
fewer rights and no protection. And so it just scales up. Um, there's so much here that I am privy to in my community and across the nation. Uh, but I guess it gets really scary when you start to think about uh, what about those people who are invisible to me <laughs> that I don't know about. So I, I think I, I think a lot of what I learned, one of the themes that I learned and am learning in my relationship with Christ is attention to the least of these. And so lots of people have been called in different ways, but I think I've been called to pay attention to um, indigenous peoples. Where do you still see hope? I see hope in the fact that uh, <laughs> Native peoples have had so many efforts to eradicate us, but we're still here. Hmm. And uh, the resiliency. And I think, you know, I, I spoke earlier about traditional ecological knowledge and needing to to take lessons and, and knowledge to, to use them. I think resiliency is another store of knowledge that pretty soon our entire globe will have to tap into. Um, I, I don't want to be a doomsayer, but the pandemic is um, likely just a fraction of the chaos and the calamity of continued climate change. Mm -hmm. And so the resiliency of native peoples against all odds um, and wherever you are in the world, the, the specific local situation may differ, but against governments and armed militias and economic interests, um, indigenous peoples have survived and hopefully are thriving. And so that gives me hope. Hmm. Hey Carly, uh, I work for an organization that celebrates this year 75 years of you know, existence. And this is also used as a time to reflect how did we do and what do we need to do uh, in, in the future. And an important topic for us is uh, racial justice. And so my question to you is, if you look at the NGOs, um, and, and I know it's very difficult to generalize, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. If you look at NGO as a sector, how do you how do you think the NGO sector did around racial justice and how it is doing at this moment? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure that you've had lots of guests who've had so much more time in the NGO sector. And so I want to acknowledge my, my freshness, newness. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's certainly a lot of progress to be made. Um, there was a, there's a, a guy in Native philanthropy, Edgar Villanueva, and, and he studies and, and promotes decolonizing philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And according to his numbers, there's a, a disproportionately lower amount of private philanthropic dollars going towards Native peoples in the U.S. than our population would warrant. Uh, and I'm sure if you looked at other racial groups and ethnicities, you would probably find the same. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways, um, it's probably... Uh, due to who is working and who is making decisions. Um, and there's a natural inclination, regardless of who we are, um, to try to find ourselves in other people. And, and so um, there's probably 
a stronger connection when the people who are working in the NGO space can identify themselves and the people they are seeking to serve. And so if there's not adequate diversity and inclusion in the ranks, then there would not be reflected into the service population. But I think it also ties back to a little of what I was trying to tease out with food sovereignty and just the notion of sovereignty in general and, and how can NGOs be more um, governed more participatorily by the people they are interacting with. And I think in a more philosophical sense, realizing that those of us who are seeking to be helpers today may be the ones to be served in the future. And mm-hmm. we, by, um, by reaching out and attempting to create more diverse and inclusive spaces, um, it's a, uh, how do I wanna say, it's a, a, a risk tolerance measure, right? Because if you have friends from around, if something bad happens where you are, you have a friend somewhere else who can help. And so I think the concentration of of anything in one place is pretty risky. And so I I think it's really important that your organization is taking this milestone as an opportunity to reflect. Mm. Um, And I I would say that increased uh, participation from service populations uh, is a real uh, cornerstone in an anti-racist uh, strategy. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I also try to use this opportunity to tell people about the sustainable development goals because i really think you know it might not be perfect that we as a world set 17 goals to make this world better but at least it's a start and it has people you know uh, talking about this and thinking about it that's what i believe um yeah it's if i ask you what do you want our listeners to know about the sdgs about sustainable development goals um yeah what is your answer Yeah, I also value uh, the SDGs as a a framework for increased and continued discussion. I I think the the folks who who narrowed it down to 17 had a hard job to do, right? And the most important thing for me are the interconnectivity of each goal to each other. Hmm. Um, And... I'll just pick one in particular. It's something that um, is also really important to me that I haven't had a chance to speak about yet, uh, which is gender equality. Mm. And um, I am amazed at no matter which SDG you look at, um, gender equality would automatically improve the metrics across the board. Um, and so I think, but gender equality is also such a personal and interpersonal, um, and in some ways intangible, uh, idea, right? Because Mm. you can have equality in a constitution, but does it play out in real life? And so it's a really hard one to understand or understand and measure but I think it's really important and critical throughout. Um, and so it just a, a good practice for myself, I think, in my future research. Uh, a lot of my research will be in climate change and climate change impacts, which is one of the goals. And also reducing hunger and e- increased economic development, but just using any of the others as a filter. Um, because you you have to make progress on all of them if we're going to reach the goal. Yeah. And just for the listeners, which goal is that? That's goal number five. Uh, that's looking at gender. And I, I really agree with you. You know, um, 
actually one aspect of it is educational level of, of mothers. And, and uh, what research shows is that for every year more of education, there's a direct impact on uh, nutritional status of children within that household. So it, it, it is, there's a direct correlation, it's unbelievable. So, so and that's just one, you know, step in, in why it's necessary to look at SDG5. And, but you are right, it's, it's all uh, connected and interconnected. Yeah, and I'll share in my, in my personal life how this shows up. Um, your listeners may have heard of this organization, Kiva, microloans across yeah, yeah. the across the world um, and, and so I use that platform at times but what the research has told me is that uh, a dollar invested in a woman is more impactful and Absolutely. so yeah. um, I let that guide me and <laughs> as soon as I go to the platform and I'm looking at what to invest filter women <laughs> loans to women um, and you know, I, I'm hopeful that uh, more people uh, will will dig into that goal and how do we make it a reality in our everyday lives. Hey, um, I always talk about music as well because that's really close to my heart. And the question that I have for you around music is, if I ask you the piece of music or a song that embodies what you are about, well, at least for part, you know, I, I don't think there is one piece of music that can embody, you know, what we stand for. Um, yeah, what, what piece of music or song uh, would it be? I'm always... Uh, one of the worst answerers when it comes to the best or your favorite. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I have a really hard time discerning, but mm -hmm. I, 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 in thinking about this, um, I, I attended church service yesterday mm -hmm. and the sermon was about um, this idea that somebody should do something about that. And in that statement, what's an assumption is that it's not me. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> should do something. And, and there's a, a contemporary Christian song uh, with the title, Do Something. And the basis of the song says, somebody should do something. Well, God should do something. And then the chorus says, well, God created you. <laughs> and so maybe you should hmm. do it, right? Yeah. And so I, I think that um, is a a challenge to me uh, much of this season in my life of being a doctoral student will be about um, getting up close and personal with challenges in the world but how do I make sure to keep a spirit of action and and how can I use my time where I uh, get to be really reflective and to think about solutions, but how do I make sure that, that I try to put those in action? The title is Do Something? Do Something. Do Something. The song is by Matthew West. Great, thank you. And just to remind the listeners again, um, we created a Spotify a playlist and uh, if the songs are available at Spotify, then you will see the songs that are chosen by my, now you are guest number 60, so the, you know, 60 people have given their songs, and it's really awesome. I, I, I go, often go there and, and listen to it, because then I'm reminded also again about the conversations that I had with, I've been privileged with such a great number of people from all around the world. Carly, we're slowly uh, coming to the end of a conversation, um yeah any any last message question uh, invitation for the listeners whenever i have the chance to address an audience um one thing that i always invite people to do is to learn more about indigenous peoples in their community um and so uh being from different geographic areas um, that can look different ways. And so if you're in an area where the indigenous peoples of that land 
are there, then I encourage you to, to learn more and to get to know um, and, and incorporate that into how you go about your day and, and just think about, uh, because what we're fighting is erasure. And so the first step is, is to, to bring light to and, and to think about. Then naturally, if you cultivate that, then the other things, the bigger actions and the shifts in attitude, I think will follow. Uh, some people may, may think to themselves, oh, I don't know if there's anybody where I'm at, but the odds are there may be people who have moved to your area who are also of an indigenous background. And I think that's important too. Uh, one fact that many people are not aware of in the U.S. is that well over 50% of American Indian Alaska Native people in the U.S. live in urban areas. So not on the land that would be considered their homeland or even the reservation, but in urban areas. Um, and those people still carry with them the knowledge and the culture um, and uh, pass that along into generations. And so wherever you are, I invite you to find a way to connect with indigenous peoples and then let that connection lead the next step because people need different things. And so rather than for me to assume what that may be, um, finding out locally and then acting as part of a community is probably the best way forward. Thank you so much, Carly. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I think there is a moment in, in the talk that, that you and I had where you said, um, you know, that you were kind of afraid if you were not, you know, doing enough to, to ensure that, you know, the indigenous people would not be forgotten. I, I think you're so far in your life, you have done everything uh, right. Of course, you know, you can always do better, but but uh, nobody's perfect. But uh, I think it's pretty close. I'm, I'm so impressed but with everything you have done so far and what you're doing. I'd like to wish you all the best. And um, yeah, looking forward in, in collaborating with you through, you know, our mutual... Um, you know, law for, for growing hope, this organization. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and uh, yeah, uh, all the best. Thank you. Mark. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram walk is around the corner because i'll be walking again from october 11 until 17 and you can support me you know you can join and the great thing is that when you support me uh, that thanks to the immense generosity of restart bank we have received a magic grant of $2,500. And this means that every dollar you donate to the 100 mile hunger walk will be doubled until we reach that goal. So please do it. But there are nine other ways that you can support uh, you know, this year's 100 mile as well. See you soon.